Welcome to When Movies Were Good, a laid-back discussion about all your favourite films from the silent era up until 1959. You can hear our channel's content on YouTube, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and follow all new updates and events on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Please give us a thumbs up or a good review, whatever your favourite podcast channel allows for. It helps to get us in front of more people. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome back to a new edition of When Movies Were Good here at the resort studios in Melbourne aka my back flat. Uh, Yourself, myself, Rachel, the host and the Jonathan Harris of this podcast, my weekly or bi-monthly guest star, Matt. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. If you're going to keep calling it the resort studio, we're going to have to bring some Manhattans or something. Yeah, here. definitely. Um, we're going to have to. No pineapple contact. <laughs> no pineapple cocktails. I hate pineapple. Well, but Matt's a big lover of eggnog. So with the Christmas season about to come upon us, Matt was telling me, um, you know, he's. Do you have like your own secret recipe for eggnog or no? Well, I have Jamie Oliver's recipe and I don't tell everybody where it comes from. Oh, well, thanks for that. <laughs> You're welcome. It's not like, uh, you know, um, Colonel Sanders, you know, secret spices recipe or anything like that. Look, I, I could put, I don't know, a, an extra uh, an extra pinch of nutmeg or something in it and say that's what makes it mine. Although we were reading there's like different variations, like an Irish variation, a German variation. So maybe, maybe I think I think you would do good with the German variation of eggnog. Yeah, well, I'd also love um this this German mold wine that it's called Glühwein, where it's like a hot wine with spices in it. Ooh, it's very nice. Oh, and then you uh, were you going to have a crack at making hot toddies or no? You well, may have to. Why not? And I'm thinking of getting into beekeeping too, which means I'll have honey, which means I'll have to start brewing mead, and like maybe I'll make honey flavored whiskey as well. Wow. Hopefully, I just won't blow anything up in the process. <laughs> I can actually see you as this like winter like out on the you know we live actually um the area of melbourne that we live in is close to the yarra valley region which um has fantastic well i mean i don't drink but i go out there often just with friends and stuff and it's a beautiful area of the world but i could see matt living out there in a beautifully restored house running his own winery and writing his crime novels yes i may need you to help me peer pressure make into that choice yeah. of real estate though <laughs> Well, we're going to talk about well, someone who actually was, you know, classic film actress who is still with us, the wonderful, talented Angela Lansbury. We have actually mentioned her on this podcast before because we've discussed a few movies with her in it already. And I expect we'll be making a few Murder, She Wrote references tonight. We will. Now, Matt is just, Matt's a big fan of Columbo and, and things like that. And obviously Murder, She Wrote, the film or the TV series that Angela Lansbury, it's actually overshadowed a lot of her film work and stage work of both she was prolific at um just with her character jessica fletcher and murder she wrote i mean i grew up with that show so that is how i remember angela lansbury um you know um matt it's more you're what more bed knobs and broomsticks sort of thing well until i was about 12 i think i it felt like uh, bed knobs and broomsticks was the only thing angela lansbury did and uh, because that was one of my favorite films i mean uh uh, which in enchanting a huge museum full of suits of armor to uh, <laughs> knock out a, na- a Nazi invasion. What's not to love? 
Yeah, no, she, I mean, she, we were, I mean, we were just reading through the back catalogue of Angela Lansbury's career and my God, what a career this woman's had. What a workhorse she is. And it just goes to show she's 96 now and she was out here in Australia, what, 2013 touring with James L. Jones in Driving Miss Daisy. I didn't see it, a friend of mine did. And my gosh, I mean, to be that agent, to be overseas traveling, working on stage, you know, several nights of the week, I mean, good on her. When, when a lot of people their age, it's all you can do to coax them to go on a weekend uh, on a ferry trip. Yeah, that's it. It just goes to show you. So Angela, um, Dame Angela Lansbury, I should say, um, she's technically considered a British Irish American, uh, American actress because she, her early life was obviously in the UK. And then as a young woman, she, um, immigrated out to the U S, uh, when the war was going on and then started her life out there and then, you know, became an American, um, after she'd lived there for several years. So she's not only an actress, but she's a well-known singer. And if you are familiar with the cartoon Beauty and the Beast, she does sing a version of the theme song there. I was going to start launching into it, but I won't. Uh (laughs) It's a tale as old as time, Rachel. (laughs) We do not need to sing. Um. And her career, she is still technically considered a working actress at 96 and her career has spanned over eight decades. And she has been, she, I mean, I guess along with what, there's only a few of them left now after we lost Olivia. She's one of the last remnants of the golden age of Hollywood. Although unlike a lot of um, female actresses of her generation, uh, she seems to have, uh, gotten her bigger roles when she's reached middle age plus because she had um a, a few uh major roles like uh the picture of dorian gray that we're discussing tonight mm-hmm. in the sort of pre-1959 period but uh it was i think in the 60s onwards that she became a uh, more well-known yeah and we actually didn't realize that one of our former prime ministers malcolm turnbull is related to her because his mother is a lansbury and she i believe is one of uh, Angela's cousins. So that, well, I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of that. I wonder if that's in his autobiography. (laughs) Well, I'm sure when she was touring here with driving Miss Daisy, uh, he would have met her because they are related. So if only he had his memoir out at the time, uh, he could, she could have put a few in the gift shop for him. Yeah. He always seems to be, um, uh, trying to sell copies. He does. And he likes to sell copies of his own autobiography, I think as well. So just briefly, uh, a little bit about Angela, because she's the person, even though there's very well-known people in both of the films that we're going to be discussing. So we're doing the picture of Dorian Gray, 1945. Um, with Herd Hatfield and just what a f- I mean I got a lot of mirth out of watching that film I had a great time watching it and of course one of the family favorites I used to watch this a lot when I was growing up although this was the first time I sat through it from start to finish with the wonderful Danny Kaye the court jester 1955 so these films are you know roughly 10 years apart in in age and yeah I just didn't realize I always just think of murder she wrote when it comes to Angela Lansbury I had no idea just the the depth and the breadth of not only film work that she did but of TV work and of stage work which she's still going on with now so you know just a little bit of background about her before we go into the films so she obviously moved um you know the blitz 
when that was happening in London, she moved her and her, uh, I think her stepfather, her mother and some siblings moved over to the United States where I think her stepfather had procured some sort of employment or he was doing some sort of job there. And uh, then she sort of started acting in New York City. She'd always had an interest in it, always was a big film lover, went over to uh, Hollywood, of course, where all the action was. She signed to MGM and obtained her first film role. So playing a lot of English characters. So Gaslight, that's one of the films that we have discussed with her and then the picture of Dorian Gray she actually got two Academy Award nominations she has three in total she hasn't won and she has bucket loads of Emmy nominations and has never won it's just insanity I don't know if it's politics or what it's like what's his name um the Australian actor what was he John Wood the Blue Healers guy who just kept getting nominated and nominated (laughs) for a Logie and over and over yeah the Logie is like the uh, you know Aussie version of uh the Emmy Awards so it's still nice to win one but yeah I mean it's just some people are just nominated they never win although she always thought that was a good thing because it didn't lock her into the Academy Award winning actress because some people win an Academy Award you never hear from them again so um, is, is it like wanting to be the second finale on The Bachelor? You don't yeah. want to be the bachelor, <laughs> the bachelor winner because you don't get your uh, influencer deals. Yeah, well, that's well, yeah, that's exactly right. Although some people who do, are the runner-up in certain competitions actually end up doing quite well. So, My point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so obviously, Angela was involved in Disney films. She has been Broadway, The West End, you name it. Some of her more famous roles. Gypsy, Sweeney Todd, which he played the lead in that, the female lead for quite a long time, The King and I, and we're assuming at the time she was playing Anna, she took over from Constance Towers, who I know from soap operas, Um, she took over from her in the late 70s, I'm pretty sure she would have been working with Yul Brynner then, because he was off and on and off and on that role on Broadway, Um, and then once she sort of moved into television, she became extremely famous playing the detective sleuth, Jessica Fletcher on Murder, She Wrote. Now, before we go into these two two films, which I loved for very different reasons, I have to add this little vignette about Larry Hagman in. Now, when um, Dallas, Larry's TV show, finished in 1991, and when they came back in 1996 to do the first reunion movie called J.R. Returns, he was paired up with a much younger woman in the film. I mean, his, you know, character J.R. always was. And I remember a TV writer here, or um, I don't know, I think actually, no, I think it was in the US, did a review of it and said, could we not have paired Larry Hagman up with, um, you know, Angela Lansbury or someone closer to his own age? (laughs) I'll never forget that. I was like, the guy actually does have a point there. I think she, hang on, she... She's probably about five. She's about, yeah, I think Larry, if he was still with us, would be like 91. So she's about five years older than him, but that would have worked. So let's step into the picture of Doreen Gray. Now, this is 1945. I was very surprised just how many versions of Oscar Wilde's um, 1890 novel that there are. I mean, I even forwarded Matt one with Anthony Perkins in it, which is quite interesting. And uh, even if not full adaptations, there's also plenty of uh, ones that make uh, references to it, uh, <coughs> uh, like uh, the last uh, Sean Connery film, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, that uh, references a lot of uh, Victorian age literary characters. There's a reference to Dorian, um, although the character there is uh, the 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 the, per- the the narrative purpose of the painting is a bit different. Uh, so yeah. it, it's become this uh, rather um, 
uh, oft-quoted uh, concept in a gothic fiction, the uh, the painting that uh, has access to your soul and mortality. Yeah, well, essentially, you know, uh, spoiler alert ahead, the picture of Dorian Gray in the, um, the novel is essentially about this young, well-to-do man who, I guess, trades his soul to stay eternally young. And this portrait that's painted of him as a young man by a, a friend, associate, a family friend of his, and in the different versions of the the, the films that have come out about Dorian Gray, you know, there's a, a, there's a female version of it, there's many male versions. Um, essentially what happens to this picture is all of the sins that Dorian Gray commits go are taken into this picture and this picture becomes this horrifying thing that just sort of exists in its own dimension sort of thing. So everything that he does, murders that he's involved with, people who take their own life after an action that he's sort of forced them to do, this painting takes on all of that horrific um, energy, this spirit energy, and just turns into this. I mean, I was actually quite shocked when I saw this painting when he, un, you know, people like Dorian, you're not getting any older, and then. You know, he brings this person up into the attic where he has the painting in the film. This is this film that we're talking about, and uh, I, I was like, "Oh my god!" When they showed the painting, I was like, "Geez." Yeah, yeah. Although I thought their haircut made him uh, the the evil Dorian Gray look kind of uh, I don't know, like a one of those spaghetti men that where you are to get a <laughs> piece of play doh and squeeze it through a. Yes. Squeeze it through a, yeah, a, a mesh thing to, to make the hair. He definitely had a hair thing happening. It was a bit sort of Phantom of the Opera-ish, but um, um, like Lon Chaney's sort of Phantom of the Opera. But I, that was actually a shock to me. I wasn't. I don't know what I was thinking when I when he unveiled the picture and the the, the original artist was like, "Oh my god, I know that's the the picture I painted of you. What happened to it?" But there was like a streak of color that went through the picture, and I was sort of watching it on an alternative platform, and I thought maybe the uploader had put that colour into the picture and Matt was like, no, no, the colour was there because he was watching it um, through Apple. So, yeah, yeah. Well, it was quite clever. Like, unlike The Wizard of Oz where you have the it go from black and white to, to colour for the rest of the film, it's just a couple of times used for this dramatic effect when they show the painting, um, which uh, gives a real... Uh, sh- shocking power to that uh, moment when uh, Dorian uh, sees his portrait. Mm. So, uh with a bit of a dramatic music uh, too, so I, I that was a a, a real surprise of um, yeah. uh, how to do the picture. Well, it says just in some of the research that um, obviously the film is shot in black and white, but it features four color inserts in three strip Technicolor of Dorian's portrait, and these are a special effect. And then um, the first two inserts are when Dorian's young, and then the second is of the degenerate one, which we're we're talking about when the painting has taken on all of these sins of Dorian Gray. So I think a couple of other versions of movie versions are actually called the sins of Dorian Gray. It should be clear, though, uh, make clear, though, that... Well, I don't know about you, but I haven't uh, read the Oscar Wilde's original book yet. No, so I what haven't. we're really talking about is we're talking about um, the storyline of this particular yes. film, yep. um, uh, as opposed to um, uh, what Wilde wrote in his book. And I'm actually surprised how many film versions they were making so early, because uh, in we do know that in a Wilde's original text there were a lot of um, layered references to his own. Um, 
bisexual or homosexual interests, mm-hmm. and it was on, unfortunately and regrettably uh, used uh, actually as evidence against him in his, in his trial. Yes, when he um uh, when uh, basically the father of one of his boyfriends was pissed off at him and decided to... Yes, and, that's right. And yeah. so basically Oscar Wilde's downfall was her, uh, this this uh, bigot um, uh, wrote a nasty note to him in his in his club and he mm-hmm. decided to sue him for libel, which was not the best uh, uh, move because it's a, it literally meant he had to put his um, his private life on the stand when it, at the time when it was a crime to be a gay man. Yeah. So it was uh, a very tragic ending for him. But this book, I... I'm, I actually want to read the book now because I thought this this whole concept is completely fascinating and there's so many, you know, it's that whole exploration of, you know, doing what you want because it feels good but what's the ultimate price that you pay? And you see people in your own life who drink, smoke, this, that, sleep around, whatever, and they, pay, they do pay an emotional and physical price for that, whether their health is affected or their mental health is affected. And it was amazing sort of at the end of this film, again, spoiler alert, <laughs> um, when, you know, Dorian himself, you know, dies and then the painting sort of reverts back to how it was. I actually thought for that era it was a pretty decent sort of, uh, you know, technical achievement. They sort of had the spinning sort of, you know, the painting sort of coming back. I mean, they could obviously do something a lot more imaginative now, but I thought for 1945 that was all right. Like, yeah, I guess they could have, um, like, um, sort of uh, gone into soft focus and maybe use, a, like, a kaleidoscope lens or something, but that was uh, pretty clever. Yeah, so, you know, the plot in this film, you know, starts off 1886 and Dorian Gray is played by Herd Hatfield, who I'm not that familiar with but was absolutely perfect in this role. He did have um, a fairly good career, but this is probably his famous role that he's known for playing Dorian Gray in this film. Which apparently he came to regret later. Oh, did he? Oh, okay. That's interesting because we were seeing there – but he was good friends with Angela Lansbury and Angela Lansbury actually met her second husband, the man that she would remain married to most of her life up until his death through Herd Hatfield. So um, at a party or something like that. I really love the other people. So yeah, essentially he's a very intelligent person, but he is naive, he's manipulated and these faults and this fault for this um, wanting this eternal youth uh, spiral into his ultimate downfall because uh, it eventually catches up with you. So um it's now Henry. Um, now was it George Sanders who was playing Han, Han, Henry slash Harry? Was utterly hilarious in this film. Yeah, he just always seems to play these rather man-child roles. I just uh, every line out of um, Lord um, Lord Henry's mouth, and he's all through the film is the most hilarious quips and just turn of language, turn of phrase. Uh, I just just laughed through the whole thing. I thought it was... <laughs> what I don't understand is, is that if Lord Henry's supposed to be the one that influences Dorian Gray to lead this pure hedonistic life, mm. how come he doesn't end up all yeah. colourful and uh, riddled with syphilis <laughs> like the painting? Yeah. Oh, God, that painting is horrible. Oh. I... Th- I th- I think it's making meant to be making a pretty clear reference to suffering from syphilis, which was often, if you led a very uh, uh, liberated sexual life, you often ended up with a lot of syphilis, which ended up with a lot of uh, harsh growths and even uh, parts of your face falling off and stuff. 
Well, yeah, and even it can be passed on to babies as well, and they can pass on the syphilis to other babies if they're near them. And you know, it's 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 um it's actually terrible. So, oh god, that picture is horrible. But anyway. all right, the the <laughs> moral of that story: condoms are important. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So essentially, when Dorian makes this trade off, he, you know, the picture takes on all of the signs of his you know, hedonistic lifestyle and all of his sins as such, you know, um, vanity, all the rest of it, while he stays the same. So he's like in his early 20s and, you know, we're going a few decades ahead and people are like become very suspicious of him and why isn't he changing and what's going on here? And then when the original artist uh, actually uh, comes through. So this is Lowell Gilmore's character, Basil, who painted this painting of Dorian when he was younger. Dorian allows him, he's locked the painting away, obviously doesn't want anyone to see it and how it's changing. The artist knows that he painted this painting, which is now this grotesque figure. And that's when you see it sort of pop up with the color. And, um, you know, from there, Dorian sort of spirals downward because then he starts, he commits murder. He gets other people involved in it. They're then picked off because of his, um, his, you know, dealings as such. So now we need to go back to what Angela Lansbury, she basically plays like his love interest in this film. And, I guess his life starts going wrong after he messes her around because she actually kills herself because of him. Well, yeah. that was almost the point at which he was actually going to um, be like, it's better to be a, a person of virtue and to commit yourself to a love interest. But when uh, she dies as the result of his... Uh, um, Nasty letter he sent her in what, what, haste. Well, he, he's sort of... Um, he's, he, he's sort of peer pressured by uh, Lord by Lord Wharton to, uh, uh, to kind of entrap her into a... I mean, it's fairly obvious that yeah. what he's entrapped her into doing is sort of to... Uh, if she agrees to be with him, then it must mean that she's morally beneath him or something. Mm. And then he's like, wait, I am being an idiot. I am going to write a letter and apologize. Right. Um, but it's too late. And he's like, okay, I have debauched once. I will keep debauching for the sake yeah. of debauching. Yeah, so Angela plays, you know, her role in the film is brief. You know, it is a it is a decent part, but it's at the start of the film because her death um, starts Dorian's downward spiral and making this deal and all the rest of it and, and then the painting, etc. So, but beautiful. She actually plays a singer in this film and uh, sings quite beautifully and is stunning and, and plays a um, just a sweet, innocent girl who's caught up in this, Thing that she doesn't know too much about so it's very tragic when her character dies in the film but ultimately this film is uh I just thought it was really interesting I just thought the themes in this film it was beautifully shot we had a lot of light and dark you know when Dorian would do something there would be the light swinging in front of his face and all that sort of stuff oh, sorry behind him sort of making those shadows in front of his face which we would see used again about uh, two decades later in Psycho yes yes so you know in the basement um, with uh, the mother, mother. With Mrs. Bates and um, 
I, yeah, I just enjoyed it. I ju- I'm actually looking forward to seeing a lot of the other versions, particularly the telly movie that Anthony Perkins did. Now, I saw this um, years and years ago, but they sort of flipped the roles in this in this film where this model, Dorian Gray, a female, she makes this deal. And, and But I want to see how they, they deal with the picture in that film because I only was really watching it for Anthony, so I couldn't, couldn't tell you what was happening in her part of the story. Uh, but there's several different versions of this film. And as Matt said, the right away stuff, started making films about this this is a film that you you know if you're a classic movie lover and you haven't seen the picture of dorian gray see it angela's fantastic in it uh but all of the support like hurt hatfield's great george sanders is fantastic uh and just a beautifully shot interesting film about very interesting themes yeah well it's uh I'm glad that I finally saw it. I've been meaning to see it for years. Yeah, actually, yeah, I was um, really happy when you suggested that one. So we're going to jump 10 years further on and we're going to the lovely court jester with the glorious Danny Kaye. And in this film, um, so we're we're now heading to 19. So this film's a, a musical comedy and essentially it's a uh, slapstick it's musical it's you know lots of fall down get back up you know and i noticed that danny Kaye was wearing the first version of that rapper mc hammer's pants in this film like those baggy pants that he had on when he was becoming the knight <laughs> uh, well done i i was i knew that as well <laughs> Um, yeah, just look up MC Hammer's pants and look at uh, Danny Kaye's pants in this film and, and uh, you'll sort of, you'll get it. So I had, I, I remember this film for the music, the fun, the mirth, the, you know, all of the great musical pieces in this film. Uh, and this was my first time actually sitting down because I used to watch it when I was a kid and I'd sort of sit there for half an hour and then walk off. Uh, and this time I was obviously there from start to finish, which was great. So just to briefly go through this one, this is Danny Kaye's film and Glennis Johns was great in this film as well of course basil rathbun great cecil parker um but angela lansbury played um the princess i think gwendolyn was her name in this and she was lovely and again sort of 10 years on from what she did in picture of dorian gray uh more of a supporting role in this film so essentially it's almost like a biblical story here well it's i think it's pretty clear that it's meant to be a send-off of the likes of the adventures of robin hood yeah and even, also even the Mo- point that, that moses sort of you know, because he was taken from his, uh, you know, parents and he was the rightful uh, king of Egypt or whatever and this little baby that they rescue is the rightful king and then they're trying to get rid of the other king who took his place because he sort of got rid of all of the, the members of the royal family but this baby has a special birthmark on and when people see that they know he's a member of the royal family. So Danny Kay gets to do a lot of fun things with the baby and showing the birthmark and stuff. I don't know, would they even show that now? Like... They even show the baby getting his birthmark shown near his bum, or no? Well, I, I don't think that the lineage of a royal family is necessarily <laughs> determined by a birthmark. No, that's true, and especially one so like perfectly like drawn like a tattoo. But um, so this baby has a special birthmark, and the people that are looking after the baby sort of, um, yeah, uh, yeah, sort of like a Robin Hood sort of character. And and Danny Kaye's character now was it Hawkins? I believe his name was in this film. He comes into um, 
you know, he's in their sort of posse and then when they need to sort of have like a sort of Trojan horse type character go into the castle and pretend to be a court jester who's also um, like he's also a hitman as well, Danny Kaye's character gets involved in that and um, it, uh, lots of thrills and spills but then the rightful heir, baby heir is then um, restored to the throne at the end. So it's a happy ending and, and just a really fun film and Danny Kaye is such a talent. Yeah, I've never seen so many tongue twisters used so well. Yeah, there are lots and lots of tongue twisters in this film. And, in fact, if you look this film up on YouTube, it's all of the the big tongue twister. You know, if you're familiar with Abbott and Costello, the who's on first, what's on second, it's that that sort of thing. Wait, who's on first? Yeah, what's on <laughs> what's on second um yeah it's that that kind of thing you know no that sort of um thanks for that uh that sort of slapstick and heaps of um there were some little people in this film who were fa- utterly fantastic playing um the part of the posse that comes to the the, the in the sort of the ending scenes lots of slapstick lots of swashbuckling with you know going across the moat and rah 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 with the old saber and uh you know just Lots of stuff that they were, especially Danny Kay was asked to do in this film, singing, dancing, slapstick, comedy, and even a few romantic scenes with Glennis Johns' character. He really was the full, the full package and just, and what a life this man led. God. Yeah, I mean, uh, going from being an exceptional golfer to flying private planes. Uh, <laughs> and all the work that he did for, like, was it UNICEF? Like the humanitarian causes that he... Yeah, so, know, like, uh, 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 that was uh, long before Audrey Hepburn became a big uh, part of that organisation. Yeah, she was the other person that I knew. So, look, The Court Jester is one of his most famous films. And, I mean, it's set in, um, you know, medieval times, which is always, even though medieval times was not great, for much of the population they still are able to do they really wear the tights and all that like that everyone just walked around in these tights and uh, well it varied with fashions from time to time or naturally because the what we call the middle ages was about a thousand year period of time yeah that's true and like it often could be um uh, uh used um as a fashion statement because the fact that you were wealthy enough to have uh, your clothes cut tightly Right, yeah, I was going to say it wouldn't be like a, a you know someone in the feudal like labouring in the fields or anything. They wouldn't be wearing those sorts of, um, but yeah. So no, it'd be a lot more baggy. Yeah, a lot, <laughs> and uh, probably coarser fabric. So, um, but the sets are fantastic. So big. Uh, the the film was shot in. Uh, Technicolor and Vista Vision, and that's a widescreen format. So, really, seeing this at the movies would have been a great day out. Yeah, I. It would have been great if they could have somehow worked uh, Donald O'Connor into the yeah. into the story as well. Because imagine they're all his slapstick here from Singing in the Rain, putting those two together. Yeah, and I love Donald O'Connor as well, and. Yeah, he easily could have fit into this cast, but I guess then you would have had like a five-hour movie because both of them would have needed to have showcased their talents. To make them laugh. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, I really enjoyed this film. There's lot, like Danny Kaye was a, like Angela Lansbury is a working actor. He worked and worked and worked. Even when he stopped making movies, there was 
personal appearances. There was telethons. There was all of his work for UNICEF. You know, he just kept going. He was a pilot, a very well-trained pilot. And, you know, the man was a jack of all trades. And even though he didn't obviously sang a lot as well, and even though he didn't necessarily wasn't a formal musician who read music and, but he was kind of pretty much pitch perfect. And, um, you know, and then, and Angela did do a little bit of singing in this film with her, with, uh, is it the liar that she was playing or the lute? Not the lute. It was the liar. I think she was playing. And I'm trying to remember which uh, instrument it was. I think it was, was a liar because the lute's more than, I think Danny. Well, the lute's like lute. a, the lute's like a tiny guitar with, yeah. the, with the, with the backwards neck. Yes. Yeah. They, they are, they are once, was an actress named Angela. <laughs> she wore a pointy hat. She made her nursemaid hypnotize him. <laughs> For fear of execution. <laughs> Thanks for that. You're welcome. The minstrel Matt there. Yeah, yeah. the lutes of the guitar. I think Danny had like a lute type of strumstick sort of thing he had going on and she was playing the lyre, which actually the lyres have come back into fashion now, like the mini harps. Well, a lot of um, scholarship has been done about early music uh, uh, these days, uh, the early use of the recorder. Mm. It, I mean, the recorder was originally a very uh, well-regarded instrument. It wasn't just for third graders to hurt your parents' no, ears. No, that was a big Baroque instrument. And when you hear someone that can play the hell out of the recorder, it's a yeah. fantastic instrument after all if it's not baroque don't fix it <laughs> but um this and this is what probably i would say this is his i guess white christmas is very famous as well but you know this is probably the big film that he's well known for just because it has such longevity there are certain films i mean you can turn on the tv here in australia on a saturday afternoon and still see the court jester so um just in terms of you know yeah two very different films but two very entertaining films in their own right the use of color in you know obviously in Doreen Gray it was this black and white sort of you know descent into you know the obscurity of what this man had signed up for with this portrait and taking on these horrible characteristics of all the bad things he'd done and then there were those flashes of color which were really like oh my god am I am I actually seeing color there but it was and then obviously the beautiful technicolor vista vision the whole thing of um of the court jester so yeah yeah, well, it uh, rang some um, uh, memory bells uh, when we were talking about what uh, program to do, what uh, films to do for this program, because I thought it sounded familiar, and I remembered um, when I started watching it. Yeah, like when I was a uh, little, one time we just happened to turn the television on with when my grandfather was around, and he suddenly got all excited. It was uh, a Danny, Danny Kay's called Jester, one of his uh, favorite comedians of all time. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm sure my mum grew up watching all of his movies as now. Now, one thing I just wanted to double check and make sure I was getting the right actress here because I have found a link, another link with my beloved Larry. Just bear with me for a second. I just want to confirm because I know, I know it was her, but before I say uh, picture of Doreen Gray film, it was Donna Reed who was playing the niece in that film, wasn't it? And hang on, let me just, yes. It, Donna Reed, the beautiful actress who was playing um, the nef, uh, the niece, sorry, in this film, who as Doreen got older, she was, she'd grown from a little girl <clears throat> into a young woman and was attracted to him as well. And uh, just, you know, she played Larry Hagman's mother on Dallas. Well, she, she replaced Barbara Bel Geddes 
for a year and then Barbara Belgetis came back. So two beautiful classic actresses. How lucky was he? So he had two different mothers in the one show? Well, Barbara Belgetis, who originated the role of Miss Ellie, uh, she'd had a few health problems and about 1984. Smoking doesn't help. No, it doesn't. And Barbara Belgetis was a smoker and uh, she left the show and... JR needed one of his parents around because poor Jim Davis had passed away several years earlier and because kept that character in check and gave him his come come up and so they needed that narrative tool in the show and also the fact that Miss Ellie was married to Howard Keel's character so they wanted to keep him around so they recast the role of Miss Ellie um, with Donna Reed and apparently Larry was a bit standoffish with her because he was very close to Barbara Belgettis. And Donna just stayed on the show for one year and then Barbara Belgettis agreed to come back. And it just literally they switched them both in and out. And then unfortunately Donna passed away shortly thereafter. So I don't think she was treated very well on the show and I feel bad because she'd had such an illustrious career herself. So That's unfortunate. Isn't yeah, it? that was their uh, last project. And and I thought it was confusing when they uh, changed the mother on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. <laughs> Or in that other sitcom, Family Matters, when one of the siblings just disappeared and you never saw them again. So um, Works on neighbours all the time. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's, it's just the tropes of soap operas. But, um, yeah, Donna Reed was – I was like – and we, we've seen Donna Reed in other films and she is a beautiful and she had her own show and, you know, worked through. But that uh, role that she did on um, Dallas playing her version of Miss Sally, which was quite different to Barbara Balgetti's, that was the last role she ever did before she passed away. So thanks, Larry. Anyway, um <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that was our discussion about um, the wonderful, talented, still with us, thank God, Angela Lansbury, who's just such a part of my childhood. I mean, you know, Murder, She Wrote. And uh, it was great to see these two films. Two, high, I recommend both of these films for very different reasons, but I really enjoyed the picture of Dorian Gray. Yeah, did you um, have a favourite out of the two? I would say... I'm happy to watch Danny Kaye in anything. So any movie of Danny Kaye's, I really enjoyed The Court Jester, but I really enjoyed The Picture of Dorian Gray. Yeah, I love them both, but I, I was uh, surprised how much I was going to love The Court Jester. I thought The Picture of Dorian would uh, come out clearly on top, but I really love them both. Yeah, I actually, I just, that painting, oh my God, I just can't get over it, but it was great. I just kept thinking I've imagined seeing that colour in the painting yeah, and I and, hadn't And as um, we'll call it the syphilitic painting, um, <laughs> it's actually on a display in a gallery in, a, in one of the main galleries and I think it's Chicago or Boston. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. Something, something we'll look into. Maybe I, I'll go there one day. Yeah. Well, I've been there, but I can't actually remember if I saw it, but maybe I just wasn't on the lookout for it at the time. Yeah, because you did see in the credits for the movie that they definitely credited the artists with those portraits because they were such an important part of the film. Well, they would have probably been the most expensive prop. I mean, to get a painting specifically commissioned now, I think will cost you four grand up, even for a no-name artist. Yeah, and especially someone who was tasked, because I think different um, painters did both the different portraits, like the, the good portrait of Dorian and then that that horrible one and uh I think two different artists because I saw two different names there so um did the older version the horrible version of Dorian so definitely lots of things to check out that Anthony Perkins version of Dorian Gray the the picture of sorry the sins of Dorian Gray that is on YouTube you can watch that and I'm pretty sure the other films are pretty easy to access through different streaming platforms so worth checking out yeah definitely well, uh, we are heading into the Christmas season. We are doing a Christmas double bill. 
we're uh, going for some old favourites because I want to see these films. I have uh, obviously very familiar with them. We are going to do uh, Miracle on 34th Street. That's uh, with Maureen O'Hara. And then we're going to do Judy Garland in Meet Me in St. Louis, directed by Vincent Manali. So I guess that's where she met him or sort of paired up with him. Yeah, well, um, uh, I haven't seen uh, Miracle on 34th Street uh, ever, so I and I wanted to for a long time, so I'm glad to have the excuse to watch it. And uh, what can I say? Clang, clang, clang. I'd love to see <laughs> St. Louis again. Definitely, and get ready for my rendition of that. Uh, so thank you for joining us, and in the meantime, as always, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. Thank you, and have a good one.